Let us pray. O blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's good to see you all today. We are in Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 20. Beginning at verse 13, we'll go ahead and we'll read through the end of the chapter. For those of you who are new to this study, feel free to go ahead and grab a lunch and eat while I talk. Hopefully, I'll say enough to work up an appetite for you. So, <laughs> Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 13. Luke writes, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Midilane. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to them, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, this is a very touching, poignant section in the book of Acts, just a reminder of what has happened up to this point. Um, Paul has finished his third missionary journey for all intents and purposes, and he took a brief and final tour of the mission field, so to speak. We're told that after over two years in Ephesus, where he had had a very fruitful ministry, spent more time in Ephesus than he spent anywhere else during his years of active ministry, but after he finished his time there in Ephesus, he had intended to go to Jerusalem. But we said that he received word that there were trouble in some of the churches. Particularly, there was trouble in the church in Corinth. And so Paul had decided to go back through Macedonia, uh, visiting the various churches there, the church in Thessalonica and so forth. And then he was going to travel down to Corinth. But he received word that many of the issues that were troubling him about Corinth had been resolved. And so he decided to spend more time in Macedonia, ministering, strengthening the disciples. And then he was going to travel down to Corinth. We said Corinth was a very important place. We've, we've emphasized that many times. It needs to be remembered. It was that very strategic location on that isthmus between the mainland of Greece to the north and the Peloponnese to the south. Paul had established a Christian presence there because he knew that if he could do that in these great metropolitan areas, then like everything else, all the commerce, all the fashion, all the trade, the gospel would be coming and going as well. He then traveled down to Corinth, and he stayed there for the winter. It was very dangerous to travel in the ancient world in the wintertime, especially by ship, very treacherous. They didn't have modern forms of sonar. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have accurate weather forecasting. And so oftentimes, ships simply didn't sail during the winter months. And so Paul wintered there in Corinth, at which point he was going to travel on to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, the way he would have done that is he would have gotten on a ship in those days, because it was around Passover, the Jews would have boarded what was known as a pilgrim ship. And he would have traveled from there uh, over to Jerusalem. And that's what he was intending to do. But we're told that he received word that there was a plot afoot to have him assassinated. That some of the Jews were upset with the things that he was preaching among the Gentiles, and there was a plot to have him killed. Now, that could have happened any number of ways. You could just imagine on a ship in those days, some dark night, Paul could have been strangled, he could have been stabbed, he could have simply been pushed overboard, and nobody would have ever known anything about it. And so Paul decided that he wasn't going to go on that ship. He heard about it. He traveled back up through Macedonia, and he was going to take a ship from another port, a safer port. And that's where we saw him uh, last week when we were together. We saw him meeting at Troas with the church. We got a great picture of what worship was like in the early church. That's one of the important things about that account of Paul's visit to Troas. Uh, we have the story, of course, of Eutychus, as Paul preached on. Long, good, long sermon. Uh, Eutychus, the flesh was willing, but the spirit was weak, or maybe the, the opposite. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. Eutychus became drowsy and fell out the window. That's the only part that anybody remembers about that story. 
And I said, it's a great encouragement to a preacher to know that people fell asleep even during Paul's addresses, you know. So that's, that's a comfort to know. But of course, that was not the most important part about the story. It's wonderful that Paul was able to raise Eutychus from the dead or heal him. We're not really sure whether he was dead or not. But that wasn't the important part. The important part was to get a picture of what the church worshiped like in those early days. And it was a great picture of what you saw earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, where they devoted themselves, what? To the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to the prayers. And we saw all of those factors at play in Troas. We're told that Paul preached. He preached a good long sermon, as we said. They broke bread. In other words, they had the Lord's Supper. They had the Eucharist. There was a time of informal fellowship afterward in which Paul began to teach them even further the things that he had been talking about over the course of the evening. And then there was, of course, we can assume, prayer. So he saw all of that. Great picture of life in the early church. And we said that this is a pattern for how we are to worship today. That the, the focus of our worship is not the congregation. The fo focus of the worship is what? It's God. He is the focus of the worship. Uh, he, in a sense, is the audience and we are the actors, and we are there for his pleasure. And we saw a great picture of that. Well, Paul then boards the ship, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the account today. He traveled down from Troas. He passed by Ephesus. Now, you would have thought that Paul would have stopped there in Ephesus. Because, again, he had spent so much time there. These people were dear to his heart. But we're told that he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He had missed the Passover by this point. But he wanted to get there for another festival, and that is for Pentecost, which in light of what had happened on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church had taken on a whole new meaning for the Jewish Christians. And so Paul was eager to get there. But he wasn't going to pass by the opportunity to meet one last time with the leaders, at least, of the church in Ephesus. And that's where we pick up the account today in Acts chapter 20, verses 13 and following. We're told that now from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come up to him. And when they came to them, he said to them. I've always felt that Acts chapter 20, as I said, is a very poignant section of the book of Acts. And primarily for this reason. Up to this point in Acts, we have seen Paul primarily, not exclusively, but primarily as a public figure. In fact, if you really want to see Paul, the private man, you've got to read the epistles. And the best one probably to read is 2 Timothy, his last epistle. Very touching. Uh, those of you who've been in the rector's forum, we just finished a study of 2 Timothy, Paul's last will and testament, as it were. His final parting words to his young protege, who was, incidentally, the leader of the church in Ephesus. All right, so, so this is, that was a very poignant letter. Uh, if you have the time this afternoon, go home and read 2 Timothy. You can probably read it in the short span of about 25 to 30 minutes, but a great letter. Very touching letter. But in the book of Acts, you don't see that side of Paul. You pretty much see the public side of Paul. Paul, the public figure. This is the one we're so familiar with. This man who's out there preaching in public, who's going out and evangelizing the Greco-Roman world, who's establishing Christian churches. This great missionary, this great soldier for Christ, this champion for the gospel. That's, that's the picture that we get of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And sometimes that can lead us to the impression that Paul was really not like us. That Paul was sort of this giant of a figure, this, this two-dimensional figure in stained glass windows, this plaster saint, this, this person who was so great, he's really not like the rest of us. 
And that's one of the reasons why I love this section of Acts, because you not only get a picture of Paul, the public figure, you also get a picture of Paul, the private man. Paul, with these people that were near and dear to his heart, these people that were really his spiritual children. He was their spiritual father in God. And you get this powerful picture of this man and the love and the care that he has. Paul was not just a great evangelist, he was a great discipler. And that is so important in the life of the church today. It is one thing to preach the gospel and evangelize people and bring them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, but Paul did not want to leave them there. We've said this many times before, it is so important that we understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from something, from sin and death and condemnation, but he also came to save us what? For something. That's absolutely right. For good works, for the glory of his name. And Paul knew that it wasn't enough simply to preach to them that they were sinners in need of redemption. The question was, what next? And so Paul spent a great deal of time discipling these people. And these were his disciples, and he loved them very dearly. And so before he passed by Ephesus, we're told he stopped at Miletus, which was about 20 or 30 miles from the capital. Uh, Ephesus was the capital of Asia, the Roman province of Asia. And he called them together. And these were his final words. Very poignant scene. Uh, you can see as Paul departs from them, he makes it very clear that they're never going to see him again. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, I have, uh, as you all know, two years ago, coming up on two years now, I, I left a congregation where I've been for 17 years. That's a long time in one place, relatively speaking, for many pastors these days. 17 years in one place. And it was hard to leave. I'm firmly convinced that I made absolutely the right decision. And, um, well, thank you. <laughs> so far, so good, at any rate. It's, it's always a probationary period. I'm well aware of that. Sometimes in Charleston, probationary periods last for about 40 years. But at any rate. But the reality was it was difficult because you form relationships. Your children are raised there. And, and, and Paul had formed relationships. And, and these people had been brought to faith through his ministry. So they were very dear to his heart. Those of you who have been evangelized, there are certain people that, that brought you to faith. They were the instrument that God used to bring you into a lively relationship with Jesus Christ. And oftentimes you have a deep and abiding kinship with that person. That's one of the things I learned very quickly when I came here. How many people who have been converted during the ministry of Rennie Scott, for example? How many people whose lives have been deeply changed as a consequence of his ministry? And they still feel a great kinship with him as a consequence of that. Well, I think that's exactly what the Ephesian elders felt for the Apostle Paul. And when he said that they would not see him again, we're told that they wept. They broke down, thinking that they would not see him, at least in this life ever again. And from what we can tell, that proved to be the case. So it's a very poignant scene. But what I want to focus on today is not just the poignancy of the scene, but what Paul said to them. You know, last words are very important. Sometimes it says a great deal about a person there, last words. And these were the last words that Paul ever spoke to the Ephesian elders. What did he have to say to these people? What were, what were going to be his parting thoughts or parting shots to these people in Ephesus. Well, I would say that Paul's final words can be summed up in four categories. First of all, Paul's testimony. Paul is going to give them here a recounting of his own testimony. 
his testimony among them. Second thing is you're going to see that Paul gives them a charge. He reminds them, as the elders of the church in Ephesus, of their responsibility as leaders, as spiritual leaders. Third thing we're going to see is that Paul prayed for them. He prayed over them, and he commended them to the care of God. And then the fourth thing is that Paul reminds them that they are not to stay focused on the things of this world, but to store up, as Jesus said, treasures in heaven, where there is a great reward that waits those who finish the race. And so those are the four things that we're going to look at today. If we get through them, we'll go on to the next section. But I wouldn't hold my breath if I were you. So, Paul's testimony. What does Paul say here about his time among the Ephesians, these final words to them? Well, take a look at verse 18 and following. And when they came to him, Paul said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. First thing that Paul says to these people as he reminds them of his ministry among them, as he recounts his testimony, is that he served them with great humility. Humility is an important part of the Christian witness. Now, someone might even argue, well, the fact that he had to tell them that he was humble doesn't sound particularly humble. I mean, after all, but I don't think that this is any false humility on the part of Paul. I simply think that's what he's reminding them. You remember when I came among you what it was like. I didn't come in here and lord my apostleship over you in any way. I came here as a servant, as a first among equals here. I came here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's important because Paul was speaking to the leaders of the church. He was speaking to the elders of the church. And oftentimes, being a public figure, there are challenges with it. We all recognize that. But sometimes being a public figure and a very successful public figure can be intoxicating. It can be an enormous temptation. I mean, sometimes when you're a preacher, people will come up to you afterward and say, you know, that was the most wonderful sermon I've ever heard in my life. That was just amazing. There's a little bit of you just sort of, your head just begins to grow just, just, a, just a wee bit as a consequence of that. It just sort of happens. I remember on one occasion, uh, I had been preaching and teaching a class, and um, they started posting them on the internet uh, at St. Helena's, and then they started putting my picture next to it, the pictures of the various clergymen, you know. And uh, as it turns out, they pulled a picture from several years before and put it next to that. And this young woman who was in my class came up to me uh, after one session, and she said, I, you know, she said, I'm just joining the class, but I've been listening online. And she said, I've got a question. And I could tell she's all enthusiastic. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get a compliment. She was a very attractive young woman, too, which made it all the more, you know, appealing. And she said, I, I, I just want you, I, I just got a question about your classes. And I said, what was it? And she said, when did they take that picture? Were you 21 years old? <laughs> It had absolutely nothing to do with the class. And I could just, it was like a pin in a balloon. Pop. I mean, just bam. 
You see, you get, you get built up. You can't help it, can you? And so th there's that danger. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers, probably, uh, in English and American history. Now, certainly in his day, in the 18th century, George Whitfield was not only the greatest preacher of his time, he was probably the greatest orator of his time. And bear in mind, this was in an age before modern forms of entertainment. There, there was no television in those days. There was no radio in those days. And so if you wanted entertainment, you came out to hear public speakers. And these public speakers could go on for a long time. It was, it was not uncommon for people to listen to addresses that lasted for hours. For example, on November 19, 1863, you all know that Abraham Lincoln delivered one of the most famous, perhaps the most famous speech in American history uh, when he dedicated the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. But did you know that he was not the first speaker? He wasn't even the main speaker for the occasion. He was an afterthought. They decided they were going to dedicate a national cemetery, so somebody probably ought to invite the chief executive of the United States. But he was not the main speaker. The main speaker that day was Edward Everett former president of Harvard, and he got up and he spoke for two and a half hours without a single note. Lincoln got up and spoke for two and a half minutes and sat down. And Edward Everett came up and took his hand and he said, Mr. President, I would flatter myself to think that I came as close to the sentiment of the occasion in two and a half hours as you did in two and a half minutes. Now, some of you are thinking, yes, that's right. Brevity is the soul of wit. I wish our, I wish our clergy were wittier than they are. <laughs> My point, however, don't miss it here. My point, however, is that it was not uncommon in an age before mass media, in an age before texting and tweeting and instant communication for people to listen a long time for speakers. And Whitfield was a spellbinder. I mean, he really could. He could speak to a crowd. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was one of his contemporaries, I uh, had heard that Whitfield could speak to crowds of 25 and 30,000 people at one point. And Franklin just didn't think that that was possible. And you know, Franklin was a great scientist. And so when Whitfield came to Philadelphia, he decided that he was going to test it. And he did. He marked off the entire space that was necessary in order to get 25,000 people in. He checked the radius and all of that. And then he stopped way out on the edge of the crowd, which was a huge crowd, and he listened for Whitfield. And he said he could hear him as though Whitfield were standing next to him. So he had a great set of lungs. He was, had a masterful command of the language. Everybody who talks about contemporaneous accounts that talk about George Whitfield say that he just had this masterful command of the language. And not in a bad way, but in a good way. He could really control and, and captivate a crowd. But when you're that kind of a speaker, People come up to you and they say, oh, Mr. Whitfield, what a gift. There's nobody like you. And it wasn't. He was not an attractive person physically. As a matter of fact, he was cross-eyed. But he was a great speaker. And people would come up and they say, oh, Mr. Whitfield, there's nobody like you. And, you know, it's very easy to get ahead. But he had a very interesting way of dealing that. When people would come up and they'd say, oh, Mr. Whitfield, that was the most marvelous sermon. I've never heard anything like that. Whitfield would always turn and say, I know. The devil told me the minute I stepped out of the pulpit. I know, the devil told me the minute I stepped out of the pulpit. Now, 
don't take this the wrong way. If I say something that turns your life around, by all means, let me know about it. <laughs> but I want you to realize that, that there is that temptation. And Paul knew that. And he was reminding these people that they were to serve with humility. And that is to remember that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of lights. There is not a preacher in the world who has ever converted a single, solitary soul. That is the work of God the Holy Spirit. Now sometimes it pleases God to work through the instrument of preachers. But that's not what he promises to bless. He promises to bless his word. It's always a temptation for public figures when great things begin to happen to begin to think to themselves how great I am. And so Paul reminded them of the need to serve with humility. Reminds me of the story of the young Scottish minister who was preaching his first sermon in the High Kirk in Edinburgh, St. Giles. He was all excited, all excited. He prepared a great manuscript, and he knew that he was just going to wow the congregation. And when it came time to preach, he literally bounded up the stairs into the pulpit, and he began to preach. And at some point, he lost his place. And it was downhill from there. It was a complete catastrophe. And he came down out of the pulpit, completely crestfallen and dejected. And the beetle which we would call a verger, an old elder of the church, was sitting just beneath the pulpit, and he leaned over and he said, Ah, lad, if you've gone up the way you came down, you might have come down the way you went up. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Ah, lad, <laughs> if you'd gone up the way you come down, you might have come down the way you went up. Humility. I don't think it's any false humility on Paul's part that he's reminding them of this. He's reminding them that his entire time with them was not to point to himself. His entire time with them was to point them to Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria. You know, that's how Johann Sebastian Bach signed all of his compositions. He would always sign them S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. What does it mean? No, it doesn't mean to God be the glory. It means to God alone be the glory. In other words, not to me, but to God alone be the glory. That's what Paul says. As we seek to minister as Christian people, that's one of the things we have to remember. Always, always pointing people to Jesus Christ. You and I do not have the answers to people's problems or to their needs. We are merely signposts along the way. And Paul served among them with great humility, always pointing not to himself but to Jesus Christ. I think that's a great message for you and for me in our day and age. So that's the first thing Paul says to them. He reminds them of how he served them with great humility. Second thing he says, however, is that when he served among them, he served with great humility and with tears. And with tears. As a matter of fact, he mentions that twice in verse 19 and in verse 31. He mentions the fact that he served them with tears. Now, I think that's significant because Paul does not strike me. And I've studied the life of the Apostle Paul for years. Paul does not strike me as a weepy person. 
You know, there are people who are weepy. Do you know weepy people? I don't find them particularly effective, quite frankly. I, I just, you know, there are some preachers that want to get up there and they want to manipulate the congregation, and, and, and they think that if you can make the congregation cry, you've been effective. Well, I've got to admit, I've heard a few sermons that make me want to cry, but not for the reasons that they intend. Paul doesn't strike me as one of those people that's kind of trying to manipulate people's emotions and, and weepy. He doesn't strike me that way at all. And yet he does say that there were times when he served among them with tears. What is he talking about? If he's not talking about being a weepy person or a manipulative person, what does Paul mean when he says, I served among you with humility and with tears? Well, I think it's obvious what he means. He served among them with great sincerity. And, and not only with sincerity, but with empathy. Paul gives great pastoral advice. I think this would be a great message to young ministers today to heed. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says this in verse 15. He says, live in harmony with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, there are those people that are Pollyannas that when you're going through a difficult time, all they want to do is come and sort of boo you up. And what you really need at that point is a shoulder to cry on. And I think that's where Paul was. And I think Paul learned this from the one who is the master of it, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 11, we have the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that section of John 11 contains the shortest verse in the Bible. A little bit of trivia for you. The shortest verse in the entire Bible. Two words. You know what they are? Jesus. Oh, wow. They're primed and ready to go. Very good. I'm impressed. You must have been taught well. When I served among you with great humility... Uh, it's Jesus wept. Now what's so powerful about that story, John 11, is this. We all know that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus had fallen ill. And they said, come, come and heal Lazarus. I mean, that was the point of sending the message to Jesus that he would come. And Jesus says to the disciples, don't worry, this is not going to end in death. So the disciples said, okay. And so they lingered, we're told, for a few more days where they were. And then finally Jesus says, all right, we've got to go and, and wake Lazarus up. And the disciples said, well, if he was sick, he probably needs the rest. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. He's dead. What do you mean dead? You, you said this wouldn't end in death. What do you mean he's dead? And Jesus said, just trust me. And so we're told that they traveled on and they get there to Bethany and um, as they're still a long way off, you know the story, Martha, who was the ramrod around the place, she goes out and she meets Jesus on the street and she says very clearly to him, if you had been here, in other words, translate, if you had come when I told you to come, none of this would have happened. And Jesus says to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And you can almost see Martha I know, at the last day, and Jesus said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Jesus puts it right back on her. 
And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ who is to come into the world. And then we're told that he went and he got Mary, they got Mary, and they traveled on to the tomb. Now, what I want you to understand is that this was all part of the plan. Jesus lingered where he was for two days so that Lazarus would die, so that he would go to Jerusalem, to Bethany, the whole point of which was to do what? To raise Lazarus from the dead, that his glory might be manifested, that this might set the stage for his final journey to Jerusalem and Palm Sunday. You know, if you go through the gospel, one of the things that's interesting is that those huge crowds of 5,000 that had followed Jesus, 5,000 plus, they have dissipated by this point in his ministry. They are offended by some of the things that Jesus said. It was one thing to say that you were the Savior. It was another thing to say you're the only Savior, and you are the people that need saving. And they took great offense, we're told, at what Jesus said. In the Bread of Life discourse, we're told that many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. So the crowds had dissipated by this point, and then all of a sudden when you get to Palm Sunday, they're back again. Remember that? And you have to ask yourself, why are those crowds back when they had dissipated to just about 100 people? From 5,000 down to 120, and then all of a sudden, everybody, there's pandemonium in Jerusalem. They're tearing the palm branches down from the trees. They're taking their cloaks. They're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why were the crowds back? Well, if you read John's Gospel, it's clear. It's because Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. It was a public miracle. People had come out from Jerusalem to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother. So this was all designed, all of this was part of this great grand plan of God to set the stage for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, whereby he would be crucified and raised on the third day, and people would begin to see him for who he really was. Now, this was all part of the plan. And yet when he came to the tomb and he saw the sisters weeping, we're told Jesus wept. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why did he weep? Well, this is what he planned all along. And furthermore, in just a matter of minutes, perhaps seconds, Jesus was going to turn all of that weeping and, and crying and dejection into what? Joy. So why? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One reason I think Jesus wept is because he knew this is not the way it was supposed to be. Death was not what God had intended for his people initially. What God had intended was to be in fellowship with them. Sin entered the picture. Death came as a consequence. It was tragic. And he knew that even if he raised Lazarus from the dead, this was a scene that was going to be repeated over and over again countless times in countless cities over countless numbers of years. And I think Jesus wept because he knew this is not the way it's supposed to be. But I think the other reason was because Jesus had empathy. He had compassion for them. It broke his heart to see their hearts breaking. Do you have that kind of empathy for other people? You have that kind of compassion for other people. When you look at other people, sometimes the people that really irritate you, and we've all got those people in our lives, do you see them as people for whom Christ died? Does your heart break for those whose hearts are broken? Paul did. Paul didn't just come in and like a whirlwind and preach the gospel and then sort of slip away. Somebody came up to me Oh, just about a month ago. And they said, it must be exhausting for you after you've preached a sermon and taught all morning to have to stand in a receiving line. And that's what they said to me. And I said, actually, it's one of my favorite parts of the week. I love being in the receiving line. 
Now, I know it makes some of you nervous during flu season, but nevertheless, I really do like being in the receiving line. It's a great opportunity to meet the people, to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a pleasure for me, not a burden. Now, sometimes I can't do it after the 8 o'clock service because i got to get over here to teach. But I love to throw open the doors, flood that narthex with light, and greet and hug the people, and I'm a hugger, and greet and hug the people who are coming down so Paul says, I served among you with humility. I served among you with sincerity. I served among you with empathy. When you laughed, I laughed. And when you wept, I wept. I think that's so important for us as Christians. When somebody's going through a tough time, yes, give them a word of encouragement, but don't try to pick them up. Sometimes what they need is somebody to weep with them. And when they're laughing, don't be a Debbie Downer. Celebrate with them. Give thanks for the joy that they are enjoying. That's what Paul did. He said, I served among you. I want you to understand this is not just a message for the clergy. This is not just a message for those who are great evangelists or apostles. This is a model for how all Christians should minister. We are to bear one another's burdens and in so doing so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul served with humility. He served with tears. And he did it with diligent preaching. Look again at Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and following. He said, See how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul preached diligently in season and out of season, to borrow one of his own phrases. He preached publicly. We see that. We've seen that in many occasions. He preached on any opportunity that he had, he preached publicly. We saw that in Acts chapter 19, just a chapter earlier. We're told that when he was in Ephesus, he actually rented out that lecture hall of Tyrannus. Remember that? And preached for hours and taught for hours daily. And we said there were no five-week weekdays. I mean, five-week Work weeks in those days, five-day work weeks. There was none of that in the first century. If it said he preached daily, that meant he did it probably seven days a week for at least four or five hours daily. He preached publicly. But not just publicly, he said he also preached privately. There's, there's a wonderful expression here. He said, I preached in public and from house to house. Now, what does that mean from house to house? Some have suggested that this meant house churches. Well, that may be. We, we know that in the early days, they did worship in houses, in private homes. They didn't have edifices like the one we have next door. They didn't have big churches. They didn't have public worship spaces necessarily. But I think it means more than that. I think Paul literally went into the homes of his congregation, and he met them. There's a wonderful book published in 1659. I still think it's applicable to many clergy today. It was written by a fellow by the name of Richard Baxter, and it was entitled The Reformed Pastor. You can still get it. It's still available. And The Reformed Pastor was not just uh, the story of Richard Baxter and how he was a Calvinist in England uh, in that period. He was a Calvinist, but that's not what the book is about. The book is really a primer on how a minister should go about ministering or caring, the cure of souls, caring for the need 
of his congregation. And one of the things that Richard Baxter did, day in and day out, is that he went to the homes of his people. And he ministered among them. And he catechized them. That's, that's the word that he would use. He catechized them. He taught them in their homes, one-on-one, -on -one, or one-on-two, or in terms of the family as a whole. And at one point, the little village that he served in England, they said, was the most converted corner of the entire island. Because that's the way he did it. Yes, he showed up in the pulpit every Sunday and he preached. That was his duty, his responsibility, his privilege. But he also went into the homes of his people. Now, I don't know how we do that today, because that's very difficult today. It's one thing to do that in the 17th century or in the 18th century in a little village in England where everybody knows everybody. It's a little harder to do it in big cities where your congregation is spread out, where you've got people that are living, yes, on the peninsula, but also on James Island and West Ashley and over there and that place across the river, what do they call that place over there? Mount Pleasant and all of these places. It's very difficult to do that today, isn't it? But I think it at least tells us this much. Paul never thought himself above that. You know, there's some preachers that feel, my job is just to be up here, and then I have all these minions that will serve the needs of the congregation. Paul never felt that way. He always took the time, it seems to me, one-on-one -on -one with people when they were in need of it. Now, sometimes there are great demands on a pastor's life, and you need to understand that. They can't always meet when it's convenient for you. But Paul always made time for individual men and women for his congregation. He taught publicly, but he also taught privately. Not only that, but he preached to everybody. He said, I preached among the Jews, and I preached to the Greeks. Paul did not just preach to a particular segment of the society. He preached to anyone who would hear the word. I think that's a good message for us. Now, that can make us a little uncomfortable because what it means is that we need to go out and amidst the people or among the people that are very different from us. But Paul was not afraid to preach to everybody, to Jews and to Greeks. And what's interesting is that both of those people gave him a hard time. Now, we know the Jews gave him a very difficult time. They plotted against his life on any number of occasions. But the Greeks gave him a hard time, too, even there in Ephesus. Those weren't Jews in that amphitheater shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Those were the Gentiles. It wasn't the Jews that gave him a hard time in Philippi and brought him and Silas before the magistrates. Those were the Gentiles. And yet Paul continued to labor and to preach and to share the gospel even with those who gave him a hard time. So often when we share the gospel with somebody and they don't want to hear it, initially they're somewhat difficult to deal with, hard to break through, what do we want to do? We want to brush the dust off our feet and think, well, I did my part. Now I'm abandoning them to the Lord. Let him take care of them. Paul never did that. He pressed on. He kept going until it was made very clear that he could not do it anymore. There was tenacity there with Paul. He was a hard worker. So he preached to everybody. He also preached and he spoke frankly. How do we know that? Because he says he preached about repentance. Now what is repentance? Well, if you were at church last night, Ash Wednesday, Ryan preached on it. The Greek word is metanoia. And it literally means to have a change of mind. 
But it's quite clear, if you certainly look at the ministry of John the Baptist, who appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance, that it was not just have a change of mind. Salvation begins in the mind. Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, but it doesn't stop there. It moves into your heart and from your heart to the rest of your body. So if you have a change of mind, if you grasp the message of the gospel, that should make a difference in the way you live. So a change of mind leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of action, a change, a reorientation of the entire person. Ryan put it well. He said it's like going down a road and you see a bridge out sign. That is a sign that says turn around. If you continue down this path, it's a path to destruction. So turn around. Paul says, I preached repentance. Well, let me tell you something. People don't like to be told they need to repent because that means there's something wrong with them. They don't mind being told there's a Savior, but they somehow fail to grasp the fact that that means that they're sinners. Somebody came up to me after church on Sunday and they said, you're one of the bravest men I know. And I said, what? They said, I can't believe that you said that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and the only way to the Father. I said, well, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. I'm just, I'm just a mouthpiece. That's all I am. But see, I think there's something to be said for being so straightforward. That's one of the things I admire about Paul. He was, a, he was a straight shooter. He spoke frankly to people. He told them the truth. Now, I think he spoke it in love, but he nevertheless spoke the truth. And he made it very clear to the people, and he spoke to them specifically about repentance. He also spoke comprehensively. Verse 27, he said, I proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. This is one of the reasons why I love the fact that we follow a lectionary. Many churches don't follow a lectionary, but one of the reasons I like following a lectionary is because otherwise you'd be inclined to go toward those passages that you like the most. And the thing about the lectionary is you never know what you're going to get. You don't know what the text is going to be. And there are times when you've got a message of comfort and hope and encouragement. Everybody comes out singing, hallelujah, God bless you. That really was the best sermon I've ever heard. And then there are those other times when, like John the Baptist, you have to stand in the pulpit and say, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? And that's a harder message for many people to hear. It's a hard one for preachers to preach. But Paul says he preached the whole counsel of God. Why? Because in the end, this was not good news. It was it was not just good advice, it was good news. And we need to hear the whole thing. We need to hear the whole of Scripture. This is the reason why you will find with me when I teach, I generally don't teach topically. I take you through a book. And sometimes it takes us years to get through the book of Acts or the Gospel of John or Romans or whatever. Listen, it's only going to take us two years to get through Acts. The last time I taught John, it took me six years to get through John. Some people were wondering if the Lord wouldn't come back before the time that I finished. Some of them were wondering if they would still be alive by the time I figured. They figured, well, if he doesn't finish it, I'll see Jesus and he'll tell me how it all comes out. But the reason we do that, there are a number of reasons, and you've heard me say this before. One reason is because it emphasizes the importance. People spend their whole lives studying the works of Robert Burns or William Shakespeare. And we don't think that's odd. We say, well, yes, there's depth there. there you could, it's, it's a continuous mine. Well, the scriptures are even greater than that. This is the word of the Lord. We could spend our whole lives and, and never, never exhaust the treasure that is there. Never. 
But the other reason for it is, this way we're not just picking out those parts of the scripture that we like, like it's a smorgasbord, well I like that part, but I don't particularly like that, I'll just ignore that part. No, when you're dealing with a book like this, you've got to deal with whatever comes up. The whole counsel of God, which has the ability, what? To make people, men and women, wise unto salvation. So Paul preached, we're told, comprehensively, the whole counsel of God. Paul toiled in his preaching. He makes that point very clear. He said, I toiled, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish the course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I did not count my own life as a value. Paul toiled. My own personal opinion is that one of the worst things that can be said about a clergyman is that they're lazy. That's my own personal opinion. One of the worst things that can be said about a clergyman is that he was lazy. That he didn't put the time, the energy, the effort that was required or necessary into his work. He was entrusted with the great mysteries of the things of God. And yet he treated them lightly. Paul was not lazy. He worked hard. I'm reminded of a quote by Amy Carmichael, who was for many years uh, a missionary in India in the early part of the 20th century. And there was someone that came to her and uh, one of her colleagues and said that she needed to slow down. She was just working too hard. She was working herself to a nub. And, and they said, you can't go at that rate. And Amy Carmichael just turned on the man and she said, I would rather burn out for Christ than rust out. How about you? Would you rather burn out or rust out for Christ? As many of you know, I came from Pittsburgh, um, western part of Pennsylvania, which for the greater part of the 20th century was the steel capital. When I say the steel capital, I mean it was the steel capital, not of America, of the world. Starting in the 1880s in the Gilded Age with Andrew Carnegie and Henry Clay Frick, Pittsburgh became famous for steel for iron, built the railroads throughout this country, and the skyscrapers. It was a great city. Those furnaces fueled this nation. But then, in the mid-20th century, really post-World War II, a lot of the steel industry got shipped overseas. And all of a sudden, it wasn't being used anymore. But at one point, it really was the steel capital of the world. I have a friend who's done some mission work in Africa, and he said on one occasion he was walking across an iron bridge in the back, back parts of Africa, in the bush, and he looked down and he saw a bronze plaque that said, Made in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. <laughs> now, Ambridge is just a little steel town on the Mon River just north of Pittsburgh, where Trinity Seminary is today. That's what, the, that's what Pittsburgh was known for. But in the 1970s, Pittsburgh was not known as the steel capital. It was known as the Rust Belt. That's because when we shipped all that steel overseas, they shut down all of these great factories, all of these great mills. And you can go up the Mon River today, and you can see all of those things just derelict, standing there, these giant mills rusting apart, falling into the river. 
know, there are many Christians that are just like that. And I've always thought to myself, every time I drive up through that area, going to the seminary or whatever it is, I think to myself, why can't we rejuvenate this? Why can't we reclaim this area, put these mills back to work? You see such potential. There's so much potential among some people out there. But the, what they really want to do is they want to rust out. They want to, they want to spend their life on what? On leisure. If you think about it, that's what the whole educational system is aimed at, isn't it? From the earliest days, what do we do? We train our children. My, my wife teaches um, preschool, and, and she loves it. But the whole point of preschool oftentimes is to get the kids into a good elementary school. And the whole point of elementary school is to prepare them for junior high or middle school. And the whole point of middle school is to get them into a good high school. And the whole point of excelling in high school is so that you can get good scores on the SATs or the ACTs. And the whole point of that is so that you can get into a good university. And the whole point of a good university education is not knowledge. The point of a university education is what? So that you can get out and get a job. And what's the point of getting a job? So that you can make money. And the point of making money is so that you can what? Live the good life. Isn't that the way it is? Of course it is. And the good life means what? Being able to do anything you want. That's what we call the good life. Paul says, I gave my life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. If he was going to die, he was going to burn out for Christ. He was not going to rust out for Christ. And so he gave everything that he had to the ministry. He toiled in his preaching. Let me tell you something. Those of you who think that it comes easy to the preachers, the preachers can tell you it's not that way. My wife and I have a little um, game we play when I'm preparing a sermon, and sometimes it's not going well. She'll know when it's going well, by the way. Um, we don't have a dog now, but when I came home and kicked the dog, she knew it wasn't going well for me. But... But she could always tell, and, and so she'll say, it's, it's like birthing a baby, I say. And so she'll say to me, has the water broken yet? That's what, I want to, if, if the water broke, I say, yeah, the water broke. She knows, okay, I got an idea, I've got a direction, I know where I'm going with this. And then sometimes she'll say, are, are we crowning? <laughs> and, and I'll be honest with you, I'll read her the sermon, and I'll say, well, what do you think? She'll say, that baby came out breach. <laughs> It is hard. There are times when it just flows like sap from a tree, but there are other times when it is just absolutely torture. Brian, am I telling the truth? Yes, sir. It's the gospel. <laughs> it is hard work. And yet what? It is a great privilege, but also a great responsibility, and you have to toil at it. You have to work at it. And let me tell you, the same is true for you in terms of personal evangelism. It is not an easy thing to do. It's an uncomfortable thing to do. It at times can be a frightening thing to do. You may feel completely and totally inadequate at times. And I get that. But that doesn't mean that it's not your duty as a Christian person, and it doesn't mean that it's not a privilege. You're going to have to work at it. And Paul toiled at it. Something else he did. He did so with no thought of gain. He didn't do this with the thought that he was going to get rich. Now let me tell you, the worker is worth his wage. 
So understand poverty is not a virtue. Those who work in the mission field, those who work in the ministry should be paid for what they do. But they don't go into the ministry with the thought of getting rich. They don't go into the ministry with the thought of making it big, of making a name for themselves. And Paul made it very clear he did so with no thought of his own gain. Verses 33 and following. He said, Now I commend you to the grace of God, for I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands, that is, his physical hands, ministered to my necessity and to those who were with me. In other words, Paul was never a burden on the people to whom he ministered. He endeavored always not to be a burden, but to be a blessing. Ryan put it well last night. He said that when we minister, we should not see other people as objects that can be used to benefit us. And Paul did not see the Ephesians or the Philippians or the Galatians or anybody else like that. He saw these people as what? As people for whom Christ died. And he toiled day and night, and if it meant that he would burn out for the sake of Christ and for their sake, he was perfectly willing to do it. It's a great example for you and for me today, because we're all called to this. I'm going to preach on this in a couple of weeks for Mission Sunday. In the Book of Common Prayer, there's a section called the Catechism, a whole question, series of questions and answers designed to teach people the faith. And one of the questions in the Catechism is this, who are the ministers of the church? What's the answer? Well, what's the specific answer from your catechism? Anybody remember your old catechism? The rector would stand up there in the old days and say to the catechist, who are the ministers of the church? The answer is lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. Who are the ministers of the church? Lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. Now, what is interesting is who comes first. Lay persons. When we think of the ministers of the church, when somebody comes up to you and says to you, oh, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to St. Philip's, or I go to St. Michael's. And they say, who's your minister? What should your response be? I'm a minister. The whole congregation. Presumably, they're the ministers of the church, aren't they? Now, if you're asking me, who's our rector or our clergy? Okay, I can tell you that. But the minister of the church, we're all ministers of the church. We are all empowered by God the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, to go out and share the faith. Now, some of us are called to do that from the pulpit. Some of us are called to do that from the lectern. But we are all called to do it in our various vocations and our spheres of influence. And the question is, how do you do it? How do you do it effectively? Paul tells us. You do it with humility, realizing it's not you. It's God, the Holy Spirit, working through you. You do it with tears. You do it with great empathy. You do it diligently. You do it publicly. You do it privately. You preach it to whoever will listen. You do it comprehensively. And you do it with no thought of gain. 
You pour out the word like water. And you trust the Holy Spirit to turn it into wine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. We thank you, Lord, for his testimony, which is not just a recounting of the way that he ministered among the Ephesians, but it is a template for how we are to minister today. Grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be like Paul, to follow in his footsteps as he followed in the footsteps of his Lord and Master and our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Grant us the grace to burn out for Christ, not to rust out with the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.